0: All right, good to see you all back here for the afternoon. We're going to jump back into the confession this, uh, this Sunday afternoon. And if you want to turn in your Trinity hymnal to page 673, not hymn number 673, but page number 673, that's where you can find the beginning of chapter 5 on divine providence. And we're going to consider the first paragraph of chapter 5 this afternoon. All right, is everyone there? 673, we are beginning chapter 5 on divine providence. Let's read the first paragraph together. God, the good creator of all things, in His infinite power and wisdom, does uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures and things, from the greatest even to the least, by His most wise and holy providence, to the end for the which they were created, according unto His infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of His own will, to the praise of the glory of His wisdom, power, justice, infinite goodness, and mercy. Let's pray together before we start. Fathers, we come now to consider the things of Your Word. We thank You for the saints who have gone before us. We thank You that we stand on the shoulders of giants Father, truly, we would not be where we are today apart from Your Spirit's work throughout the ages, preserving Your church in the truth, leading her into more accurate confessions of the truth and descriptions. And Father, we thank You for the doctrine of divine providence. We thank You that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, our one God, rules heaven and earth according to Your perfect wisdom. And goodness, Father, we thank You that we have confidence as Your people that there is not a hair which falls from our head, that You do not ordain. There is not a word that is upon our tongue that You do not know it altogether before we speak it. You have decreed all things whatsoever come to pass, and we thank You that we have the comfort knowing that whatever befalls us in this world comes to us from the loving hand of our Father, Conforming us into the image of Christ, making us more pure, more blameless, more holy, less prideful, less presumptuous. We thank you for the, the shaping effect your providence has in the lives of your people. And how you love us too much to let us remain where we are. And you always are training us and growing us through the things that you ordain for us in our lives. So, Father, teach us this afternoon. Pray that you'd give us strength and energy as we come off of lunch into an afternoon. We're tired. We pray that you'd give us um, attention for your word, uh, to your word, and that you'd give us um, a carefulness and a thankfulness for these doctrines. Bless our time, we pray. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Okay. All right, well, we're moving on into Chapter 5 of the Confession. Uh, uh, Chapter 5 deals with the subject of providence. And honestly, at one level, providence is one of those doctrines that is at the same time very simple. And depending on how deep you want to dive, it's also one that can become very complex very quickly. Um, It's very simple, and we instruct our children from the earliest of ages to know that everything that happens to us in this world, everything that happens to me in my life, to our family, to our church family, comes to us from the loving hand of God. That there is nothing that befalls us or anyone else that is outside the knowledge and the wisdom of God. And that's a very comforting doctrine for Christians um, to know that as we read God's... uh, decree unfolding all throughout the Scriptures, whether it be His judgments like the flood of Noah, um, whether it be um, the judgment of Him bringing armies to invade other countries, whether it be down to the minute things and the simple things like the grains of wheat that fall into the ground, that were blown there by the wind, that then give forth uh, vegetation for us, all of these things are from the hand of God. So. It's simple, and it's comforting in that sense, but at the same time, it can very quickly become challenging and a very thorny doctrine when you ask questions about how that all works out, uh, particularly when it comes to the will of the creature. Um, does providence do violence to the will of the creature? Um, does providence indicate a type of fatalism? Right? These are questions that are raised. And this chapter addresses those things in a pastoral way. In fact, it's interesting, Um, there are some key words that the 1689 subtly changes. They're not massive changes, but they are intentional changes from the wording of Westminster and the Savoy Declaration in order to bring in more of that pastoral, practical, devotional aspect of this doctrine. So, let's, let's jump in here. What is providence? The way the chapter unfolds is that as it does with many uh, chapters in the Confession. Paragraph 1 states the doctrine, and then the rest of the paragraphs are, most of them, clarifications um, to tease out questions and difficulties that arise from this doctrine. Um, What is providence? Well, the word, if you took it literally in its parts, you can see the word, it means to see beforehand. So you can see in providence, pra, which is before and then vid, from which we get our word video, to see beforehand. Um, but over, the, hist- over the, the years in the history of the church, the word has come to take on a specific meaning. And in our confession, um, as well as in the broader Reformed world, it's used to speak of God's ongoing work subsequent to His initial creation. Okay? So when we speak of providence, we're speaking of God's ongoing and continual work in the world subsequent to His first act of creating all things. And this is one place where um, the doctrine of divine providence differs, for instance, of the the idea of deism that was popular uh, 17th, 18th century. Um, uh, Deism taught this idea of a God that creates. This world comes from the God who creates. But then God kind of after He creates steps away and He just lets the world go on as it would. And the Bible in our confession here does not describe a God who just creates and then lets things go, but rather a God who creates all things, and that's the beginning of the execution of His decree, But then, a God who also continues every moment to wisely uphold, preserve, direct, and govern all of creation to its appointed end, the end of His own glory. That's what we're talking about in in providence here. Um, If His decree is the eternal blueprint of what He would do, creation and providence is the actual execution of that decree in time when He brings it to its, um, uh, its appointed end. So, let's dive into paragraph 1 here and then uh, we'll just describe it somewhat briefly and then we'll have three closing applications. First of all, the paragraph starts off God the Good Creator. Now, I've said this uh, many times before. When it says God in the Confession, especially in these earlier chapters, it's not just referring to the Father. It's referring to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Holy Trinity. And it calls um, this God the good creator of all things. And this is one of those interesting pastoral changes. In the Westminster Confession and in the Savoy Declaration, they both begin this paragraph, God the great creator of all things. But in changing it to good creator, the 1689 authors are tying a link back to chapter 4, remember which was on creation, and just as chapter 4 emphasized the goodness of creation because it flows from the God who is good, here chapter 5 starts by emphasizing all of God's providence is good because it flows from the God who is good. Um, and, and the authors will pepper that word good throughout, this, uh, throughout chapter 5 in a, in a comforting pastoral way. But it says, God the good creator of all things, in His infinite power and wisdom. Now, those are not just throwaway words. Infinite power and wisdom. Um, John Piper, I actually, some of you know John Piper wrote a book, I don't know, last year on Providence. It's a big book. I, I got to open it for the first time this week and actually take a look at it. He makes the, um, the good, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, He points out, I'll put it that way, my mind is running slow right now, I'm sorry. Piper makes the point that when we talk about sovereignty, we are talking about power, but when we talk about providence, we're not just talking about sheer power, but rather power that is governed by the wisdom and goodness of God. Right, so providence encapsulates more than just the idea of sheer power, but rather power That is governed by God's wisdom and God's goodness towards his own to accomplishing his own good ends. God, in his infinite power and wisdom, does uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures and things. Okay? Now, each of those four words, it's not like they just were kind of like, let's stack up words here to try to make it more powerful that God controls everything. Each of those four words ties the confession into historic beliefs about the providence of God. Um, usually, if you, if you open up a systematic, usually you'll see the providence of God handled under three um, primary uh, headings. And I think, honestly, I think that the confession here really sticks to those three and that the last two dispose and govern are kind of two sides of the same coin. Um, but let me open up each of these. Um, so it says that God upholds all creatures and things. This is often what's usually called um, God's preservation of all things, right? Um, we saw when we were in chapter 2 on the attributes of God, there is only one being who is existence himself, It's itself. There's only one being who is self-existent, and that being is God. And thus, every other being outside of God that exists, we exist by virtue of God giving us existence and life. And that is not just true in the original creation. It's just as true every moment in providence. Right? Hebrews 1.3 speaks of the Son upholding the universe by the word of His power. And whenever the moment comes... When Christ no longer wills to uphold, for instance, my essence as a human being, I will cease to be, because Christ, in His sovereignty and His providence, ceased to give me life. Um, Acts seventeen twenty five, as Paul's in the uh, speaking to the Areopagus, declares of God, He is the one who gives to all things life and breath and everything. So the very fact that we even are right now is because God is upholding us. That's true of humans. That's true of animals. That's true of insects. That's true of the laws of nature. He preserves all things in their essence to remain and to act according to their natures that He has given them. Secondly, the confession says He not only upholds all things, but He directs all things. In other words... He doesn't just uphold everything in its essence so that it can act, but He directs all things in their actions. And this has reference both to inanimate creatures and volitional creatures. right? And we could go to text after text after text. Um, God directs nature. Job 38, verse 11. God says to the oceans... This far you may come, but no farther. right? So we look at the oceans and we just think, oh, it's just the way things are. For some reason, just never, this thing never gets shaken up enough to really cause any big disturbance. No, the ocean stays within its appointed bounds because God tells it its appointed bounds. Same thing with the sun. God tells the sun the course that the sun is to run. God causes the seasons. But this doesn't just apply to... Um, inanimate creatures, it applies even to volitional creatures like men and angels. And this is obviously something where Arminians and Pelagians and semi-Pelagians would take definite issue with. They would deny this. Um, Arminians, I don't don't actually want to, I don't know about full-blown Pelagians, but Arminians would be right there with us in terms of affirming no creature can act apart from God, at least upholding that creature and giving it the ability to act. Right? They would have no problem affirming that, but they would be quick to say that God's direction of the indiv- of you know, for instance, a man or a woman or a child, in no way makes the cho- their choices or their wills uh, certain. Right? So God, yes, He upholds the creature but He in no way makes what they will do and how they will act a certainty. Um, However, there's just too much biblical evidence to deny this. Um, Again, Acts 17, a little later, verse 28, Paul says, In Him we live and move and have our being. Right. So, the creature not only lives and breathes in God, but we live and move in God, not apart from God. Uh, Proverbs twenty-one, one. You probably know it very well. The heart of the king is like a stream of water. In the uh, yeah, the heart of the king is like a stream of water. In the hand of the Lord, He turns it wherever He wills. Um. Now, as paragraph two will clarify. God doesn't do this in such a way that takes away the reality of what we call second causes, what the Confession calls second causes. We really act. Okay, We're not denying that. It's not that God, in some pantheistic way, is just acting through creation. The second causes still remain very real. Our choices really are real. We are participating, and thus we are responsible for our being the actor. But God is the first cause of all of our second causes. Um, this is also called concurrence by the way if you're ever in a systematic preservation is usually the word used for the first concept and then concurrence is the word that's used for this idea of God directing even the wills of his creatures to their own ends thirdly third word says and I'm sorry third and fourth word I'm taking these together it says that God not only upholds, not only directs, but He disposes and governs all things to their appointed end. So this is talking about God's wise government of all things. Right? So I'll just give you an example. If you think of the Joseph narrative in Gen- uh, towards the end of Genesis, um, the text says at the end, you know, um, reflecting on everything that's happened, this is Joseph reflecting on everything that's happened to him, the evil betrayal of his brothers, selling him into slavery. After all that, Joseph says that what they meant for evil, God meant for good. Right? So, Joseph's not denying the reality of his own brother's guilt. They are the ones who intended their actions for a certain reason. They hated Joseph. They wanted to be rid of him. They didn't want to kill him, so they figured we'll throw him into slavery. Never see him again. But God, in the same action, He intended the purpose of the saving alive of many of His people, which would ultimately lead to their deliverance from Egypt and so on and so forth, the bringing of the Christ into the world. That is God's wise disposing and governing of all things to their appointed end. What the brothers meant for one thing, God means the same action for very different ends. The end of His glory, the good of His people. That's His wise government. Um, the supreme example of that would be the death of Christ, right? Joseph is just a type of Christ. What Pontius Pilate and Herod and the Jews and the Gentiles intended for evil, they were actually bringing about what God had predestined from before the foundation of the world to govern it to His own ends to save His people. Um, so those four things, those three con- kind of summed into three concepts. God does all these things, the confession goes on, with all creatures and things from the greatest to the least. So everything's encompassed here. Kings and slaves are under the providence of God. Um, mountains and grains of sand, right? The raindrop and the tsunami. Everything is under, comes under the banner of the providence of God. Spurgeon said this. He said, I believe that every particle of dust that dances in the sunbeam does not move an atom more or less than God wishes. That every particle of spray that dashes against the steamboat has its orbit, as well as the sun in the heavens. That the chaff from the hand of the winnower is steered as the stars in their courses. The creeping of an aphid over the rosebud is as much fixed as the march of the devastating pestilence. The fall of leaves from a poplar is as fully ordained as the tumbling of an avalanche. And I think Spurgeon's exactly right. The confession goes on. All creatures and things, from the greatest even to the least, by His most wise and holy providence to the end for which they were created. Now, what is the end for which all things were created? The glory of God. And when it says that, when it's talking about the glory of God... It means all the different facets of the glory of God. Um, Some things God upholds and directs and governs to the praise of His glorious justice and His wrath and His severity. Other things He upholds and directs and governs and disposes to the praise of His glorious grace, His love, His mercy, His kindness. Proverbs 16, verse 4 the Lord has made everything for Himself, yes, even the wicked for the day of doom. Colossians 1.16 All things were created through Him and for Him. Everything exists for the glory of God, whether prosperity or calamity, whether times of peace or times of war, grief and happiness, righteousness and unrighteousness. They are directed by God to the end for which they were created, to glorify the One who made them. And then it says he does all this according unto his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will. Now, this again is emphasizing the perfect wisdom of God in providence. God, put it this way, God does not do anything with only part of the picture. Okay? Humans do things with only part of the picture all the time, and oftentimes we get it wrong, and we turn around and say things like, if I had only known, right, I would have done it this way. There are no um, partials in God's knowledge. God's knowledge is from eternity past, perfect of all things that He decrees. Um, He upholds, directs, disposes, and governs according to His infallible foreknowledge which infallible means it cannot err. Um, And as we saw in chapter 3 on the decree, why does God foreknow all things? He foreknows all things that will be because He has decreed them to be. In other words, God doesn't just know the what of what will happen. God knows all the whys of why each thing will happen and the relationship in which one event stands to the next, and why God has done the one and why the other is dependent upon the one before it, um, He knows how all the dominoes, so to speak, will fall. Not because He just foreknows it, but because He's decreed how each of those events will fall. And it will terminate ultimately in the perfect glorification of God. Uh, Burroughs, Jeremiah Burroughs wrote, this is kind of I don't know, it's a clunky quote but it's good if you if you slow down and read it. He uses some weird English at times. He says there is infinite variety of the works of God in any ordinary providence and yet all work in an orderly way. We put these two together for God in the way of his providence causes a thousand thousand things one to depend on another. There are infinite wheels in the works of providence. All the works that ever God did from all eternity or ever will do, put them all together and all make up but one work, and they have been as several wheels that have had their orderly motion to attain the end that God from all eternity has appointed. If you don't understand all that, here's his main point. He says, we indeed look at things by pieces. right? So if you think about all the things, however we can even categorize that, all the things that have happened since the beginning of the earth, Burroughs is saying all of those things are as but one with God. We see them as a billion different wheels spinning. And he's saying, we indeed look at things by pieces and we look at one particular and do not consider the reference that it has to another, but God looks at all things at once and sees the reference that one thing has to another. And that's because of His infallible foreknowledge and His perfect decree of all things according to the freedom of His own will. He knows how all the wheels come together as one and serve the one purpose of God for His glory. Um, last, yeah, lastly, before our application, it closes off to the praise of the glory of His wisdom, power, justice, infinite goodness, and mercy. Again, the whole gamut of God's glory, right? Right? God is not merely glorified for one of His attributes in all of, all of eternity. God will be glorified for all the glorious um, aspects of His being that we perceive as creatures. His justice, His holiness, His goodness, His love, His uh, long-suffering, His compassion towards sinners, grace, all of these things. This human history is being governed along by God to that end, that all of those the full radiance of God's glory will be praised by the people of God. Let's, uh, let's consider, I've just got three brief applications here, and then we can take questions if there are any. Um, three, three... Yeah, just three brief uh, applications of providence. Number one... Providence differs greatly from the concept of fatalism. Okay. Um, oftentimes, people, when they're new to reform doctrine, they're they're coming to terms with God really is sovereign over everything. They're seeing that all over their Bible, but they haven't really worked out the pieces yet of what that means. They often will confuse divine providence with fatalism, but they're worlds apart. Okay. What is fatalism? Fatalism is necessity without wisdom, right? Uh, Fatalism is whatever must be, will be. If I can put it this way, fatalism is like a blind man at the helm of human history. No purpose, no wisdom, just sheer power and necessity. But providence is the warm doctrine that the world is governed by an all-knowing, all-wise, personal, good creator. Okay? Um, again, Spurgeon. This is in that same sermon that I quoted from earlier. Um, after he confessed his, his belief in meticulous providence, right? Every bubble that gets splashed up by the tugboat and hits the side of it, all of it, is ordained by God. In the same sermon, he says this, He says, you will say this morning, our minister is a fatalist. Your minister is no such thing. Some will say, ah, he believes in fate. He does not believe in fate at all. What is fate? Fate is this. Whatever is must be. But there is a difference between that and providence. Providence says whatever God ordains must be. But the wisdom of God never ordains anything without a purpose. Everything in this world is working for some one great end. Fate does not say that. Fate simply says that the thing must be. Providence says God moves the wheels along, and there they are. And He goes on. He says, if anything would go wrong, God puts it right. If there is anything that would move awry, He puts His hand and alters it. It comes to the same thing. But there is a difference as to the object. There is all the difference between fate and providence that there is between a man with good eyes and a blind man. Fate is a blind thing. It is the avalanche avalanche crushing the village down below and destroying thousands. Providence is not an avalanche. It is a rolling river, rippling at the first like a rill down the sides of a mountain, followed by minor streams till it rolls in the broad ocean of everlasting love, working for the good of the human race." And he says this, closing, he says, The doctrine of providence is not what is must be, but that what is works together for the good of our race and especially for the good of the chosen people of God. The wheels are full of eyes, not blind wheels. And his point there is, he's trying, and I can't remember where it was, but I thought it was Spurgeon who at one point said the difference between fatalism and providence is a personal God. That's the main difference between the two is that one believes in an impersonal force of necessity. The other believes in a personal, all-wise, all-good, all-loving God who decrees all things. And that makes a world of difference. So, providence is not fatalism. fatalism. It's not impersonal necessity. Um, Second application. Providence enables us to see God and to praise God in everything. Okay? This doctrine of providence enables us to see God, and I don't mean by that with the eyeballs, but I mean in all the things that take place, we're able to trace all of them back to God Himself. Now, even as I say that, we have to guard that idea. Um, Some who have held to a doctrine of providence really move into a type of um, pantheism. But this, according to our confession, This doctrine of providence always maintains the creator-creature distinction. Um, God is the first cause of all things, but that doesn't remove the reality of second causes. And thus God is distinct from the creation He governs. And yet, though He's distinct from the creation He governs, yet He is not separate from the creation He governs. And therefore, everything that befalls us can be traced back to the hand of God. So, practically, and we teach our children this, but we we don't give God thanks enough for these very simple things that we take for granted. The fact that we have food in our refrigerator, the fact that it took countless exchanges of hands to actually get there, whether it be with money, whether it be trading, whatever, boats, you name it, um, that food has gone through a lot of different human hands and second agents, right? second causes to get there. And yet, when we sit down to pray before a meal, who do we thank? We thank God for giving us this day our daily bread. It's because providence is true. Because God is the one who governs the hands, who governs all things and creatures, and is kind to us. Um, or even our own hearing of the gospel though if you were to trace it back, the only reason I heard and believed the Gospel is because countless Christians have shed their blood for the translation of the Scriptures, and it's been brought to this this country, and though it took churches being planted and Christians from those churches to share the Gospel with me, yet ultimately, who do I thank for saving me? I thank God for saving me. Not not neglecting the, the... Um, debt of gratitude that I owe to the human instruments that were involved. But ultimately, it's God who is the first cause of all things. And therefore, everything that happens to us, we trace back to to His kind hand. That's the second thing. And thirdly, as we close, providence is particularly a doctrine that is comforting in times of adversity and sorrow. Particularly, the doctrine of providence becomes a comfort to us In seasons of sorrow and heartbreak. Right, we think of, or think of that hymn that we sing, More Love to Thee, O Christ. Um, I think it's the third stanza. It says, Let sorrow do its work, send grief and pain. Sweet are thy messengers, sweet their refrain. When they can sing with me, more love, O Christ, to thee. That stanza is only true if providence is true. Um, That even in bitter providences and pain and sorrow, I can know without the shadow of a doubt that this is not the devil ultimately who ordained this. This is not evil intentions of men and schemes of men, but ultimately above it all, God, my good Father, decreed and ordained this for my good. Even His messengers of pain, they are sweet messengers, as painful as they are, sent from the heart of a a good and loving God to His child. Um, I think it was Spurgeon who said, I forget exactly how it's worded, but something along the lines are, sweet are the waves that crash me against the rock of ages or blessed are the waves that crash me against the rock of ages. That confidence rests in an understanding and a belief in this kind of meticulous providence that flows to us from the heart of a good, caring God that even the waves, which seem so frightening, seem so perilous, are actually sent to us to crash us against Christ so that we would be weaned from our confidence in ourselves and depend more fully upon Christ and His grace. Any questions or comments, Thaddeus?
1: i think you <clears throat> I think you touched on this a little bit um, you mentioned how the the non Calvinist and the arminian yeah. um, they still want to affirm god 's providence um, how, how do they how do they account for that and yet still maintain their understanding of free will
0: how do they account for Sorry, maybe you say it one more time.
1: So, how how would they uphold the idea that God is in control of everything, providentially? But when it yeah. comes to free will, does He just like He chooses not to exercise sovereignty in that instance, or how do they how do they put those things together? Um, yeah. So, to to maybe a little elaborate a little bit. Um, I, I think it was Sproul who. And he might be borrowing this from someone else. He brought out the idea that there's no maverick molecule in God's universe. Yeah. And when he opened that up in his teaching session, the thing I found really helpful is he explained that when we affirm this, this idea of God's providence and his sovereignty, all we're saying is God is God. Yeah. This is if God is who we say he is, the creator of the universe, everything else is dependent upon him. That's what we mean. Um, So it it seems to me that I'm just confused about how a a non-Calvinist would would understand how God can still be in control of everything, but when it comes to free will, just not exercising that sovereignty.
0: I can't speak as an expert because, again, there's going to be variation between a full-on Pelagian, semi-Pelagian, Arminian, and probably even amongst Arminians. You're going to get a variety um, of of differences, but I do think that that's the. I mean, you're you're nailing the crux of the issue, right? They point to us and or at us, and say. If what you say is true, then there's no such thing as true freedom among creatures. And thus, you've taken away the very grounds for our accountability. That's a fair question that we have to give a response to, right? Of how do, how do we understand for God as the first cause, but the second cause really being a real cause, right? But, to your point, the other side of this whole debate is they've given up too much because no matter how you want to try to frame it, if you do retain, even if it's one area of where God is ultimately not directing that, you've now actually made the creature sovereign, even though they would never say it this way, and you've made God, to put it crassly, the responder to man, right? And so that is the key issue is, which is more biblical? And I believe that the Calvinistic perspective is more, not only is it more God-centered, but that's what you find in the Scriptures. Like, even though there's mystery, it doesn't mean that the mystery is not biblical, and it doesn't mean that it's not the right position, right? But I would rather rest with mystery rather than trying to, because I want to figure things out in my mind so much, it actually takes God off of His throne, right? So, yeah, I kind of botched that section because I was going off my notes, but I was reading, just to elaborate a little, I was reading uh, Berkhoff this week, and he has a helpful section on Pelagian, semi-Pelagian, Arminian, like, they know they're backed into a corner, okay, if God ever ceases to will my preservation, I'm no longer preserved, and I'm gone, right? So there is no such thing as an acting volitional creature apart from the preserving work of God. But when it comes to this directing, some want to say, and this is where you get into some of the thorny, you have to think about it like 20 times before you actually understand what they're saying. Some of them would want to frame that in God knows the perfect type of environment that He could put a genuinely free-willed person in to where they would of necessity choose the direction that He needs for His purpose sort sort of thing. But that God is not actually in any way directing their actions, but rather it's simply placing a free creature in a set of conditions that he knows they have to choose this. That's their way of getting it a step removed. Some of, I should say, some of their way. Um, Problem is, again, when you're talking about these things, you just don't see that in Scripture. Like you don't see that idea. You know, it sounds good at one level of like okay, but it's ultimately it's kind of like Molinism. It's like Okay, yeah, I guess you can fit that onto the Bible if you want. But it ain't in there, that's for sure. You ain't getting that out of the text. You're just kind of coming to the text with that assumption. Anyway, I don't know if that... I might have not have even answered your question. Go ahead, Aaron.
2: I think one common response that I got to that when talking with Armenians a lot was um, really that trying to make the distinction of saying that God works all things together for good, is trying to say that that's not God working things deliberately, but he works it together. So whatever comes out, he takes the pieces of what the free agents want to do, and he works the result in order to accomplish his desired outcome. So kind of like he's playing 3D chess, and He's, as you said, it always makes him the responder. And that's the issue, is it makes him always subject to creation. Yeah. that God then is always having to respond and react in order to figure out what's the right way that I should respond to my creation in order to accomplish what I really want. So it does become kind of this thing that really does lower God. Um, yeah, and, and I think that's, that's a major problem with it, that the Arminians don't seem to get around to answering, of just you've made God entirely contingent upon creation. Yeah. And to do that is to make him no longer God. Yep. To make him no longer other than creation.
0: Yep. Gary.
3: Get my steps I was just going to say just a comment on what you opened up with in the. Simplicity of providence at one level um, or the um, at, at one level everybody can understand what's being said some of the finer details are hard to work out just it's <clears throat> it's it's at one level we can understand God is God is sovereign uh, he's in control of all things he's a good God uh, whatever is ordained for us that comes down from the hand of God is for our own good right in Christ and whatnot, um, it's so simple too that we can teach our children that, like you're saying, and they might be the ones that remind us of it at times. Like so, uh, if I come home from work and say I lost my job, <clears throat> it'd be very easy for a child sometimes to say, "Hey, Dad, remember that God has ordained this for you; that it's it's for our own good, whatever those purposes are," and. Uh, Just because we know it, like just because I could know it and I could teach it to my children doesn't necessarily make me uh, have it within my being and within my fiber and I'm going to own it perfectly and walk it out perfectly. Uh, We need these reminders all the time about God's goodness and his sovereignty and all these things. And um, I think it takes uh, humility at times to just own that and recognize that when My wife brings up, "Hey, but, but you know, I I see what you're struggling with here. But remember that God has done this. I shouldn't say I know that. Don't tell me that. I should just say, you know what, honey, you're right. I do need to embrace this, and I'm not right now. Um, And let's pray, or you know, um, but just that reality of just because we we know it, we know the right doctrine, just because we confess it, doesn't make it um, what is our active true understanding and worship of God. Like we need to constantly grow in that, you know, over and over as the Lord sees fit. Yeah.
0: Oh, Aaron. Just going to ping pong back, back across the room. (laughs) Yeah.
2: Uh, one other thing I thought was really helpful that you brought out was kind of the trifecta of uh, God's goodness, his wisdom, and his power. That we see those three things here mentioned related to providence, and here the confession leads with the goodness. Mm-hmm. Um, we see those three things, those same three, in relationship to creation in the first paragraph of chapter 4, um, and seeing that the providence as God's continued operation in the world beyond creation, right, Um, that it emphasizes the same three characteristics as his work in creation, Um, and I think that those are the three key attributes of God that make this doctrine comforting, right, if God were not wise, then we would have cause for fear, in His providence, if God were not good, we would cause have we would have cause for fear in His providence. And if God were not powerful, yeah. then we would have cause for fear. So those three together really do provide us that complete sense of assurance. Yeah. Yes.
0: Yeah, and I think it's a good. I'm um, just you making thoughts. I think it's a good. Uh, That thought is a good thing to temper. I think I think back even on my own journey into Calvinism, you know, if whatever you want to call it, Reformed doctrine. And I think there's such an emphasis at first on power that we don't necessarily realize. Well, raw power by itself is not necessarily good power, you know. So while it's true that God being all powerful is a great truth, it's only great because the God who's all powerful is all good and He's all great. Uh, and, and all wise, right? Um, but I think we could do with probably uh, flavoring, at least those who are getting introduced to these doctrines, from the start and get go, a warmth to sovereignty that's maybe lacking sometimes. That it, like raw power is not necessarily a good thing, it could be a very scary thing. But because it's wedded to God's goodness and wisdom, now it's a glorious doctrine, right? Go ahead.
2: I think that's one of the things I love so much about R.C. Sproul is that he just has that real flavor of, like, here's the goodness, here's the beauty of this. And it's not simply in that God has control, but it's good that he has control. But God is gloriously, wonderful, praiseworthy, excellent in the way he exercises that control. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah.